And of course, last week we looked at the passage just preceding this one that Kyle just read for us, verses 22 to 26. And really, this is a pivotal time in Mark's gospel. This is where the Holy Spirit is showing us that the disciples only saw partially. And what I hope and pray that we're all able to see this morning as ourselves in this passage, that we see partially too. There's only one person who's ever existed that had 20-20 vision spiritually. And it's not you, it's not me, it's not some uh, spiritually elite pastor or leader somewhere, it was Jesus Christ. Everybody else has partial blindness. And the thing about blindness is you don't know what's there. Somebody has to help you see it. You need outside help. That was our points last week, three-point sermon last week. It was we all have spiritual blindness, healing is a process, and we need outside help. This whole passage is about blindness. That's why this miracle right before this one was Jesus taking a man outside of his village, touching his eyes, actually spitting on them, and asking the man, what do you see? And you remember his answer is instructive. He said, I see people like trees walking. So you couldn't say he was completely cured, but you couldn't, neither could you say that he was uh, completely blind. He saw partially, and we see partially. And Jesus, this is a parable, really. This is an object lesson for the disciples that they are just like that man he just healed. They see, but they don't see everything entirely clearly yet. And we are the same way. Uh, The way we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we see our mission, the way we view the world. And the way we understand what Jesus really is calling us to, what our mission is, what He demands of us. Um, If you back up just a little bit in the previous section, chapter 8, one of the last things that Jesus said to them was, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have eyes? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? And then He says, Do you not yet understand? And then the blind man miracle, and now this... This is here, very strategically and intentionally by the Holy Spirit. Um, This is a continental divide in Mark's gospel. Jesus is about to expose... He's he's about to drop a bombshell on the disciples. They they do not see this coming from anywhere. Up until this point, he has only alluded to his true purpose for coming. He's talked about, you know, even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so also must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Or him talking to Nicodemus... And he said, even as Moses in the wilderness lifted up the serpent, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever looks upon him and believes. It's almost enigmatic. It's mysterious. Nobody fully wraps their mind around it. He told the temple um, priests and guards that, hey, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. But now he's about to speak very clearly and very plainly as to what his mission is, how he's going to accomplish that mission and what that means for us. And I'll tell you what, guys, the disciples don't like it. Peter is the spokesman for the entire group of followers, and they're offended, they're afraid, they're anxious, they're upset. They feel like what Jesus is about to tell them is a scandal. And the reason this is so important for us is because we're all just like the disciples to one degree or another. I know we have hindsight a little bit. We know the rest of the story. They didn't. We have full clarity. We have the Old Testament explained in the New. They didn't have any of those things. But because all human beings are the same, we we don't want to win by defeat. Right? We want to triumph. We don't want tragedy, pain, affliction. We don't want a cross. This is the first time that Jesus ever mentions a cross in his ministry. And boy, does it blindside the disciples. Three points from this passage here. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what did he come to do? 
they were blind. Are we blind about this? This is pretty important. This is the essence of Christianity. If you don't get this, you don't get anything else about Jesus. And the disciples, they saw some of it. They knew a little bit, just enough to be dangerous uh, about who Jesus was and what he came to do, but they didn't get the full picture. And so what's really stunning here, and I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute, you don't really see it in the text because the translators were reluctant to translate this word the way it should be, is that Jesus basically tells them, keep your mouth closed until you fully understand who I am and what I came to do. I don't want you evangelizing about me yet because you're confused and you're going to confuse other people. And I've got to be totally honest with you as a church planner and a biblical counselor, I meet people all the time who have been evangelized by the, the half-seeing disciples. Have you? They're so confused about what Christianity is. They're so confused about what Jesus came to do. And they're really confused about what he came to do for them. And it's almost like, like dude, you've been, you've been sold a bill of goods. There's not much I can do until we take you back to the cross and give you the full picture here. So that's the sermon outline. Number one, uh, who is Jesus? Now, this is the test time for the disciples, okay? It's test day. They've been with him for almost three years. This is the last few months of his ministry. Some people say the last week. He is on his way to Jerusalem. So the parable time is over. It's time to speak plainly, speak boldly, speak clearly about, about who he is. And he wants the disciples, he wants to exercise faith. And so he says, hey, um, just like the miracle he just did when he asked the man, what do you see? He's asking his disciples. He says, hey, tell me something, guys. Who do men say that I am? And, you know, people honored Jesus, but they misunderstood him. They said, they say you're like one of the prophets. Elijah, John the Baptist, another translation or another version in Matthew says Jeremiah. So that, that's not bad, okay? They're, if this was pinned the, uh, the tail on the donkey, they got, you know, they got it on the ear of the donkey. <laughs> um, he is a mighty prophet, mighty in word, mighty in deed. He did miracles. Some of the prophets did miracles. Elijah did miracles. Moses did miracles. So they're honoring Jesus, but they're misunderstanding him. So he says emphatically. In Greek, it's actually, but you, who do you say that I am? And man, look at Peter. Look what Peter says. He says, you are, and the word in Greek is Christos. And all that word would mean to the disciples and to Jesus is anointed. You are the anointed one. And it simply means this. You're the king. You are the king. You're not a prophet. You've got to give Peter credit, man. Give him a medal. Bless his heart. He kind of got it. He says, now forget that prophet stuff. You're not John the Baptist. You're not Elijah. You're the Messiah. You are the king. In fact, it's the king. The king of all kings. The king who's going to end all the other false kingdoms. You're the anointed one. You have been set aside and appointed by God for a special service. You're the Messiah that we've been hearing about all of our life. You're going to come and you're going to end oppression. You're going to end evil. And you're going you're gonna to put Israel back on the map. Can I be really honest with you? You know what the Messiah meant to the Jews in that day? You're going to make Israel great again. That's what it meant. You're here to put us back on the map. Forget Rome. They're not going to be in charge anymore. This is our land. This is our nation. We want it back. And the Messiah is going to give it to us. And here he is, finally, Jesus is here. And Peter is so excited, he's so happy, it became clear, you know, and he had this stunning moment of clarity. This is an epiphany, you might say. He saw, finally, for the first time, this is who Jesus is. And Jesus helped him, you know. This is chapter 8. Have you noticed, reading through the Gospels, at least halfway through this Gospel, the big miracles are over. He doesn't do big miracles anymore. There's only two more miracles after this. 
It's a blind man, and he cast out a demon and a boy, and then, of course, his, his resurrection. That's the most stupendous miracle of all. But the big miracles are over. Why is that? Because all those miracles were for was proof that Jesus is God's agent, endowed with special power from God. He can stop the wind, he can stop the storm, he can stop a hurricane, he can cast demons out, he can even raise little children from the dead if he wants to. Those are the big miracles, right? So those are over, and that's why Peter said, you're the, you're the king, you're the Messiah, you have power. But what they missed uh, was what exactly that king's mission was. What is it that this king came to do, and how's he going to accomplish that? See, that's what Peter missed. Since the time he was a little Jewish lad on his mother's knee, he had been hearing about this Messiah, this anointed one. All of them had. He's going to come, and he is going to bring back the nation. He is going to be the king that we all worship and uh, praise, like the Davidic king that was promised. So why is it that Peter is all of a sudden rebuked? Check this out. Don't miss this. Look at this. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That word's not translated really well, and you've got to give the translators credit. Uh, they were a little bit timid to say what that word really means. That's the exact same word that you're going to find in the next few verses here. Look at verse 32. Look at it with me if you have a copy of God's word. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to, what's that word? Rebuke him. That is the same exact identical word and tense that is used up here for strictly charge them. Do you see their dilemma? They don't want to say Jesus rebuked the disciples. I mean, come on. Peter just gave this grand confession. You're the anointed king. You're the Messiah. And they say Jesus just strictly warned them. He strictly charged them not to tell anybody. No, he didn't. He rebuked Peter. He rebuked him. Outright, straight up rebuked him. You know why? Because Peter missed it. How could you be so right and at the same time be so wrong? So wrong, in fact, that Jesus says, Peter, keep your mouth shut. You're not any good to me right now because you're still blind. You don't get it, Peter. You don't get it. And I'm about to take the blinders off you and it's going to be very painful and you're not going to understand. But until you do, you can't be my witness. You can't be my ambassador, Peter. None of you can. You can't be my representatives on earth until you get this message about who it is that I really am and what I came to accomplish. So who is Jesus? Yes, he's the anointed one. He's the king. But he's not a king like Thor, right? Peter, all the disciples were wanting Thor to come down and drop the hammer of justice. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were longing for. They wanted this Messiah to come and bring victory. And he is going to bring victory, but he's not going to do it the way that they think he is. See, where do you expect a king to go? Seriously, if a king comes... What's there to be expected? A big what? Coronation ceremony. Where at? The palace. Right? There's a crown. We're all going to celebrate. It's going to be great. It's going to make Israel great again. But Jesus says something really stunning to them. He says, I'm a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you think I am. And I'm not going to a coronation. I'm going to a funeral. My funeral. And you're going to go with me. Because I'm the kind of king that I'm not going to, a cr I'm not going to the throne yet. I'm going to a cross. Now, you've got to understand, guys, they had absolutely no category for this. None. Whatsoever. The only passages in the Old Testament that even hinted at this was Isaiah, talking about the suffering servant. They, did not, they thought that was a different individual. They did not connect anointed king, Messiah, ruler, 
with suffering servants. So Jesus is going to put the pieces together for them. But that was so offensive and scandalous to them. And, and look, if you've never been tempted to feel the same way that Peter does, you probably haven't understood the message of Christianity. You haven't. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, if you've never been tempted even to be ashamed of the gospel, it's probably because you've never understood it and its implications. Because it is an offensive and a shameful, scandalous message. That's why Peter had the reaction that he did. In fact, Messiah, the word Messiah, has so much political and, and uh, social baggage that Jesus rarely, if ever, used it. You know what Jesus used to describe himself? You know what phrase he used? Son of man. He used it 81 times in the Gospels. Why? It didn't have any of the political baggage. He knew what his disciples were thinking, and he was constantly trying to correct it. Constantly. You remember whenever they, they came and tried to, to crown Jesus king by force? In John chapter 6, you remember what Jesus did? He sent his disciples away in a boat across the lake. Why? He's protecting them from this crazed Messiah mentality that nobody understood yet. He was always trying to protect them. And now he's with them. For the moment, at least, he's alone. There's a crowd coming, you'll see in a minute. And he is trying to help them. He wants to, he wants to take their partial blinders off and help them see. So Peter misunderstood Jesus pretty badly. He, under, he misunderstood his identity, his mission. Because, listen, Peter had an agenda for Jesus. Now let me put this in shoe leather for you and let me get in your kitchen a little bit, okay? Peter had an agenda for Jesus. And Jesus' actual mission didn't fit Peter's agenda. Now I'm sure nobody in this audience has ever misunderstood God's agenda for them. Nobody in this audience surely uh, has ever had an agenda for Jesus that didn't comport with theirs, that didn't comport with his, right? Nobody. Man, I, th I think this passage is one of the most relevant uh, places in Scripture where we get our toes stepped on, honestly. Now, I want to prove it to you because this is not the only time Jesus is going to say this to the disciples. Did you know that? Check this out. It says here in verse 31 that He began to teach them. See, after He rebuked Peter and said, you're no use to me, be quiet, don't you dare say anything about me to anybody because you're blind. And you're going to be leading the blind just like the Pharisees were. But look at what Jesus' antidote is. See, Jesus is so gracious, He doesn't leave them in their blind condition. He's going to bring about clarity, and He's going to give them the cure. And what is, what is it? Verse 31, and He began to teach them. What's that mean? So this is the starting point where Jesus is going to really reveal who He truly is and what He came to do. Jesus is going to do this. Um, he's going to do this three times. This is the first one, okay? And when Jesus explains to Peter what it is that he came to do, Peter's offended and rebukes Jesus. None of them understand the gospel. He's about to give them the essence of the gospel. And here's what I contend with you. The gospel is, is like antibiotics, okay? See, we're just like the disciples. Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly is going to tell the disciples on the road to Jerusalem uh, that he came to die. He's the king that's going to the cross on their behalf. And none of them understands it. He does it over and over and over. Why is that? Do you know what the cure for our spiritual blindness is? It's the gospel. It really is. It's, it's Jesus again to take us back to the basics. It's like that famous football coach. I don't remember what his name was. He's that famous, I guess. But he took his team and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Right? 
Jesus is taking them back to the basics and saying, you've misunderstood my entire mission for coming here. And he says, gentlemen and ladies, this is the cross. This is my mission. This is the gospel. And so Jesus tells them, check this out. He does it here. Can you see this? Uh, yeah, antibiotics. You know, if you don't take all your antibiotics, what happens? Got any doctors in the audience this morning? What happens if you don't take the full round of antibiotics? You get sick. You stay sick. And then, you're, and then your immune system is all jacked up, right? I used to do that when I was a kid. I hated taking medicine of any kind. So I would just take enough where I felt better. I'm like, man, I got this thing licked and kicked. I'm out of it. And I wouldn't take the full bottle. And my mom would have to take me back to the doctor. And they'd say, what happened? I'd say, well, I, you know, I, I was fine, doc. And he says, no, you've got to keep taking this, man. What we want is a vaccination of the gospel. Just enough to protect us from the real stuff, right? That's what happens to Americans. We get inoculated against the gospel. We just get enough to where we think, you know, this is going to protect us from the, from the offensive, you know, from the, the cross, the thing that's so scandalous and offensive. But it's like antibiotics. And that's why Jesus keeps telling them over and over, check this out. This is the very next chapter. Very next chapter. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now check this out. This is the second time he's told them this. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now I didn't put what happens next up here. Do you know what happens next? You believe these blockheads? You know what they do after this? They begin to argue amongst themselves who's the greatest. It's no joke. It's in there. Check it out. I just couldn't fit all of it on that slide. So let's fast forward the tape to chapter 10. Here's the next one. This is just two, chapter 8, they were offended. Chapter 9, they were afraid, didn't understand, arguing about who's the greatest. Chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, again is the key word here, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. What in the world is going on here? Do you know what happens right after this? James and, and John secretly approach Jesus, and they ask him if they can sit on his right hand and on his left hand to be you know, the greatest positions of power in the kingdom. They totally they don't get this. They don't get it. They didn't get it the first time. They didn't get it the second time. They didn't get it the third time. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think we fully get it? Do you think we fully understand the implications of what Jesus is saying here? How many times did we have to hear the gospel before we even understood it's about forgiveness? Right? That you're, we're desperately in need of forgiveness. We need to be cleansed. We need to confess our sins. Jesus died for us. How long did it take? I bet I heard the gospel hundreds of times, maybe thousands, because I grew up in church. And one day the penny dropped. It's like you put the, or the quarter rather, you put the quarter in the machine, it doesn't drop, you kick it, you know, you slap it, you shake it, and finally it drops. The disciples were the same way. Why? Because see, their understanding of Jesus, his agenda wasn't that he would die. No, it wasn't that he was going to a cross. They wanted a Christian, Peter wanted a Christianity that worked for him. He wanted a Christianity that worked. What was it that Peter wanted? He didn't want the Romans to be in charge anymore. Peter wanted an easy life. He wanted a safe life. He wanted to survive. 
That's what most Christians want, right? Nothing wrong with that, right? But that wasn't Jesus' agenda. His agenda was to go to Jerusalem and for the disciples to follow Him. And that didn't comport. Peter wanted a Christianity that worked. And listen, the question is not whether or not Christianity will work for you. If you start there, you're going to misunderstand Christianity. The starting point is, is it true? Right? It's not whether or not it works. If you take Christianity at that angle, I can promise you you're going to be disappointed. Because listen, guys, what do we want? What do, what do most people want? We want to avoid suffering, don't we? And we want to be happy. And we want to hit more home runs and be dad of the year. And we want our marriage to stay together. And that's what we want Christianity to do for us. We want a Christianity that works. We want a three-bedroom, uh, two-bath, white picket fence, American dream. We want our kids to go to college and not be rebellious. We want to be respected, distinguished, healthy. We, want to, we don't want to get sick. We want to be honored at our job. We want a career advancement. And we think that somehow that's God's agenda for us. That that's what Christianity is all about. But it's not. It's not what Christianity is all about. Jesus didn't come to the cross uh, to provide us all those, whatever you want to call them, amenities. That's not what it's about. He came to die because we're not good enough. That's why it's so offensive. That's why it's so scandalous. A king who dies, that's not what they expected. That's not what they wanted. And that's the next point, is that uh, what did he come to do? You know, Jesus, what he says here in verse 31, check it out. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. You know, every time he tells them this, it's the same ingredients. I'm going to die, Jesus says. I'm going to die on purpose. I'm not committing suicide here. I must die. The word day, it's a strong word in Greek. It means a necessity. I have to. This is not accidental or incidental. This is intentional. He has to die. This is God's idea. This whole death of the Messiah thing is God's idea. So he's going to die. He has to die. Um, and he's going to be raised from the dead on the third day. That's always the same ingredients in this. And so, of course, when Peter hears that, that Jesus says, I must die, he's offended. Why is he offended by that? Because if, if it was Jesus saying, look, this whole Messiah thing, I don't know if it's going to work, and uh, things are going to go south, Peter might could understand. But when Jesus says, I'm going to die on purpose, man, that's where, that's where Peter loses it. Look what he does. Look at his response. Verse 32 says, and, and Jesus said this plainly. By the way, that word, it means it's so bold, it's so clear, it's so articulate that there's no room for misunderstanding. Jesus said this plainly. See, this is not Jonah in the heart of the earth, build the temple in three days. This is so bold, so clear that Peter gets it for the first time. He gets Jesus' mission. And what does he say? And Peter took him aside. Try to imagine this, guys. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. Same word, by the way. It's funny. Jesus rebuked them because they misunderstood him. And then Peter rebukes Jesus because he hates this idea of the cross. And then Jesus rebukes Peter again and calls him Satan. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is amazing, isn't it? 
How could Peter be so right in one sentence and be so wrong in the next? I think many of us, if we're honest, we struggle to find that happy medium there. We, there is no happy medium, really. It's either uh, the things of God or the things of man. You know, s- s- Peter is using satanic logic here and doesn't even know it. That's what's so scary about this, honestly, is that you can be so much for God and slip into satanic Christianity and not even know it. Think that you're, you're doing God a service. That's what's so scary about this. Hey, can you put up this next slide? Tim Keller said this. He said, must. Talking about, I must die. The Son of Man must suffer many things. This is one of the most significant words in the story of the world, and it's a scary word. What Jesus said was not just, I've come to die, but I have to die. I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be renewed, and nor can your life unless I die. So Peter knows there's no other way. And he's offended by this. Because it doesn't comport with his agenda. It's not what he thought Jesus came to do. It's not what he thought Jesus was going to be for him. One guy said this, rob the word must, rob this passage of the word must of its meaning and you empty the gospel and the cross of glory. And there's no other religion that has a must. If you think about that, that's what makes Christianity utterly unique to any other religion in the world. There's no must. Because listen, this is God becoming killable. Do you guys understand that? This is God becoming vulnerable. I heard of the great debater James White. I went and heard him in person once. He's an amazing guy. And he has a heart for people entrapped in Islam, for Muslims. And he would travel all over. He had a great relationship with Muslim leaders. And they would invite him even into their mosque to do debating. And he would debate and he would talk about the Quran. Very knowledgeable. He knew Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. He's just a Middle Eastern guru. And he said one of the first debates he did, when it was over, they opened up the floor for questions. And a lot of Muslim clerics would come forward to the microphone. And he said the whole room was just one continuous line. And he was blown away like, man, these guys all looked eager and excited to ask him questions. And he said he wasn't prepared for what they said. Because all of them thought they had the silver bullet to overturn uh, his worldview about Christianity. And you know what they all asked him? They said, if this... I'm not even going to try to do the accent because I won't do it. They said, if your Jesus is God, how come he got hungry? And they were like all high-fiving basically and congratulating one another. Like, see, you don't have an answer for that. See, Christianity's fake. And James White said, oh my word, it's so easy to answer, to answer. He said, the next guy stood up and said, if your Jesus is God, how is it that he slept? And they were high-fiving one another because God, God doesn't get hungry and God doesn't get sleepy, right? Because he's God. And he said, another guy came up to the microphone and said, if, if your Jesus is God, how is it that he bled? Now we think, duh, these are easy answers. But what James White said, he said, I took it to the next level. He said, I got one up on you guys. If Jesus is God, how is it that he died? Because see, Islam has no concept for that. For God, who would become a man, he would leave his throne in heaven, leave his crown, and come and go to a cross. And they said, why... How, how is that possible and why would he do that? And of course, the, the answer is the gospel because he had to. There was no other way. That's why this was so offensive to Peter. There's no other way. Jesus has to die. And you know what that's saying? It's saying because we're not good enough on our own. There's a place in John chapter 6 where there's a lot of false disciples. I don't talk about this a whole lot here. Um, but I will when we get to those passages. All these people that Jesus was doing miraculous signs for, he was feeding them breakfast. You remember that? Turning loaves. 
uh, miraculously turning, you know, nothing into bread and fish, multiplying it and feeding thousands of people. And they followed him all around the sea because, hey, who, who wouldn't want free food, right? And they came to him, and it says that there was this, this ugly exchange they had where they began to get offended because Jesus says, hey, why, why are you looking for bread? I'm the bread of life. And then he starts talking about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not my disciples. You guys remember that? And it says they were all offended and they walked away. Why, were they, why is it when Jesus started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood that they, that they went away and they were offended? Because you know what Jesus is saying? You guys are so sinful. And you're so far from God. You're so hopeless. And you're so helpless that God had to become a man, to become vulnerable, to go to a cross and die for you because that cross is what all of you deserve. When they understood that, it was outrageously offensive to them. Do you know what a cross actually meant at this point? It wasn't a piece of jewelry or it wasn't studded with diamonds or any of that. A cross was the most shameful, scandalous, cruel, barbaric, offensive, and agonizing means of execution. You were stripped naked. There was no dignity. The whole world could stare at you. You, didn't, you wouldn't even resemble a human being. It would be you at your most helpless point. There would be nothing you could do to save yourself. And Jesus used that word, cross, to describe his entire mission. And the disciples just couldn't, they couldn't get over it. Peter especially, he couldn't get over it. He said, this will never happen to you. He rebuked, he rebuked God. This is what uh, Ray Ortland said. Can I, can I get the next slide? He said, Peter didn't have to set his mind on the things of Satan to be useful to Satan. All he did was set his mind on the things of man and obvious and natural and understandable things like survival. See, Peter was thinking of Peter. He was thinking of his agenda, make Israel great again, which means basically make Peter great again, right? Give me an easy life and no hell. And Jesus said, no, we're going, you're going to follow me, but we're not going to the Ritz-Carlton here. We're going to the cross. All of us are going to the cross. That meant one word to them. Death, shame, suffering, and rejection. And Peter wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, that means his power, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering because only a suffering God could help. That's amazing, isn't it? And I think that people still misunderstand this. There, there is an image. Can I pull this image up? There's an image in Italy, and it was a, this piece of artwork was formed right after Constantine declared Christianity the, uh, the official religion in Rome, Okay. It was, Christianity was the state religion, and then this mosaic was made. And if you didn't know Latin, you wouldn't even know that this is Jesus. This tells you how fast an entire nation can forget what Christianity is and just inoculate itself and, and, and become cultural Christians. You know what I mean by that? Cultural Christianity is, is basically Christianity without the cross. You want all the good stuff about Christianity, clean, neat, tidy, little spiritual formulas and, and yes ma'am and no ma'am and all of that, but you don't want the cross. And that's what began to happen to Rome. Um, but this is a mosaic. It's called the Imperial Jesus. 
He's, he's strong, manly, he's handsome, he's got curly hair, he's, got, he's bedazzled with a jewel on his shoulder, he's holding a standard. I don't know if you can see it. One of his feet is on a serpent's head and the other is on the head of a lion. And he's holding uh, a, a sign in his hand that reads, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he's dressed like a, a Roman emperor. So unless you knew Latin, you wouldn't know that this is Jesus. It's not a Roman emperor, it's Jesus. But this already, you can tell by this artwork, this is how the Romans had begun to view Jesus. An imperial Jesus. He came to make Rome great again, just like he came to make Israel great again, right? And listen to this. this these are the expectations that a Jew would have for the Messiah. How fine is the king, the Messiah, who will arise from those of the house of Judah. He girds his loins and goes forth and sets up the ranks of battle against his enemies, and kills the kings together with their commanders. And no king and commander can stand before him. Check this out. He reddens the mountains with the blood of their slain, and his garments are dipped in blood. Man, how far off were they with the first advent of Christ? See, we all fast forward. We want the second advent. We want Jesus to come and smite his enemies. But listen, guys, you've got to be careful, because if that's your view of the Messiah... None of us are going to be around, right? Because we were all what? God's enemies. Romans 5 says. He died for his enemies. When we were still the enemies of God, Romans chapter 5, I think verse 8 says, he died for his enemies. And his robe is going to be dipped in blood. Well, he didn't have his robe on because they stripped him of every last garment he had. But it's going to be dipped in blood, all right, but not our blood and not the blood of the Roman leaders and his own blood. That's what the Messiah came to do. That was his mission. It was the exact opposite of the throne the cross was you couldn't get any more different and here's another thing about why jesus had to die because religion wasn't good enough not only were individuals like peter not good enough but religion wasn't good enough check this out look at verse uh, verse 31 he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by do you miss this too in your bible who's going to reject jesus guys Think how this would sound to the, to the disciples. Let me read it. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. <laughs> you see what he's saying? Why does Jesus have to die? Because religion's not enough. You're not going to get brought back to God by religion. In fact, the people who are the most antagonistic toward the Christian gospel are what? The religious people. Religious people in that day were the ones that rejected Christ and had him murdered and assassinated him, basically, and plotted his death. Religion is not enough. This meant that suffering awaited Jesus and it awaited his followers. Now, I've I got to be honest here. What I'm about to tell you, this is just an illustration how we all misunderstand Christianity a little bit. What I'm about to tell you may offend you a little bit and make you angry, and that's okay. I forgive you anyway, okay? I still love you. <laughs> I don't like Christian as an adjective. I think I've told you that before. I've never liked that. When somebody says, this is a Christian song, this is a Christian movie, I know what they mean. They mean this is taking the Christian worldview and, and highlighting it, right? And I like that. That's, that's fine. But I don't like the word Christian as an adjective because it's so easy to misunderstand it. And 10 years ago, about, give or take, maybe 12, a Christian movie came out, okay, called 
Now, you guys don't judge me, okay? I'm just being honest with you here. Maybe this will help you, even if you hate it. It was called Facing the Giants. And all of Christianity was lauding it. Like, finally, a clean movie we can watch with our family. And this is really going to help us, you know, uh, not only entertain us with something clean and, and, and noble and praiseworthy, but it will help us get the Christian message to our, our children, right? Somebody's finally making a movie that doesn't have filth in it, and it's going to have a good message. So I watched this movie, just like you did. And look, it's a clean movie, and it's entertaining. And they act, you know, Christian... A movie produced by Christians, and it was from, I think, a Sherwood Baptist Church in, in Georgia. So the acting's not going to be like a Tom Cruise, but hey, it was, a, it was a decent movie, decent plot. But here's my problem with it, okay? This is my problem with the message of movies like that. It's what I would call, uh, some, some people have labeled that movie prosperity gospel. It's teaching prosperity gospel, okay? This is what I mean by that, that uh, you can have Jesus and you can have all the good things that he wants to bring you without the cross, without the suffering. In fact, those things are anti-Christian, right? That's what Jesus came to protect you from, not deliver you to. So here's what the movie's about. It's about a guy. He's a coach. He he's coaches a high school football team in Georgia, and he has had six consecutive losing seasons. If you don't know much about sports, that means every year, every season, you lose more games than you win. That's bad. You usually don't last six years. You get... Tanked, right? But this coach, six years, he's in his seventh season, and he's three games in, and he's lost all three. And things are just not going good for this guy, okay? His team is turning against him. The boosters that make sure he has a job, they're, they're suspicious of how he's going to be. His car is breaking down, right? And he and his wife want to have a baby, and there's infertility in their marriage, and they're starting to have conflict in the marriage, and so this is right about the time the whole plot turns in the movie. You guys remember this? This guy finally gets serious about serving God. He's going to seriously serve God now and praise God. And then this is what happens in the movie. Now follow me here. Don't be angry. Just follow me. And you tell me if that comports with this passage, okay? All of a sudden, they have a winning streak. You know? And when he gets serious about serving God, they don't lose any more games. Not a one. In fact, they win the next seven games in a row. There's some close calls, but they always come out on top because Christians always come out on top, right, when you praise Jesus, okay? They make it to the state playoffs, and they lose the game. But because he was so serious about serving Jesus, the other team messed up, and there was some kind of disqualification, technicality, so they win by forfeit. And not only do they go to the state playoffs, they win the state championship. Bam! Just because of Jesus. It's so good, right? And then that's not all, though. Wait, it gets better. It gets better. So his car was breaking down. His boosters are so overwhelmed and thrilled that he had a winning season. You know what they do? They buy him a brand new car. But wait, it gets better, guys. It's, I'm not finished yet. Because when you get serious about serving God, you know, the, the infertility, it goes away and they have a baby. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's Christianity, right? No, I'm serious. Now, don't be mad at me because the movie's a good movie. I get it. But what I'm saying is we got to be careful using Christian as an adjective because it can send the wrong message. What if he got fired and he never won another game? Because I want to submit to you that sometimes when you get serious about serving God, tragedy happens. Your spouse abandons you and leaves you. Or you get a cancer diagnosis. Then how good is Jesus? You see, we've got to be very careful. I'm not mad at the movie or the producers. I know they had good intentions. 
Let me tell you about another movie, okay? And I'm not telling you to watch this movie or read this book. But here's another movie that came out just a few years ago, and it's called A Monster Calls. And this may seem like the most pagan idea in the world to you, and that's okay, it's just an illustration, okay? Monster Calls. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's about a young boy named Connor. He's 10 years old, and his mom has terminal um, illness. She has cancer, and she's dying. 10-year-old kid, and he can't wrap his mind around it. And it's not even based on a true story. I don't know why I'm crying. <laughs> yeah, laugh so I can tell the story here. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, where was I? Yeah, 10-year-old his boy's name is Connor, and his mom's dying of cancer, and she's dying. They, they try every treatment they can, and none of them work. False hope after false hope after false hope. Well, his dad's out of the picture. He left his mom, so he's living even in another country. And because his mom's dying and he's 10 years old, what do you think's happening to his grades? He's failing. His teachers don't know. He won't talk about it. He's depressed. He's angry. He's bullied at school. His grandmother's cruel to him. This kid's doing terrible. He's doing terrible. His life's a living, a living nightmare. So he starts having dreams about this tree in his backyard that comes up out of the ground and comes alive and starts talking to him and helping him cope with his sadness and his anger. And you know what happens at the end of, this, at the, end of the movie? His mom dies. But all the time that tree is with him through the suffering through the tragedy, he's telling him stories, he's hugging him, he's showing him tenderness and unconditional love. He's helping him face the fact that he's going to lose his mom. Now, let me ask you a question. You may think that's the most pagan and ridiculous thing you've ever heard. Uh, that movie got 86% vote on Rotten Tomatoes. And you want to know why? You want to know why movies like that resonate with people? Because that comports with the reality, <laughs> right? It does. Life is filled with tragedy and it's filled with suffering. And if we think that Jesus came to relieve us of that suffering, the temporary suffering that's part of living in a fallen world and a fallen body amongst fallen people, we've missed it. We've missed it. And Jesus says, keep quiet about me, please. Don't go around broadcasting your blindness and your ignorance because that's not why I came. I didn't come to relieve you of temporary suffering here. I came to relieve you from eternal suffering here. That's what Jesus came to do. See, the essence of Christian immaturity, one person said it this way, the essence of Christian immaturity is to say, Jesus came and hung on a cross, so I never have to carry a cross. Jesus came and, and, and faced the ultimate tragedy so that nothing bad will ever happen to me. That's not Christianity at all. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. You guys all know, if you've served the Lord very long, sometimes, because you're serving Christ, crosses come into your life. Sometimes you lose your jobs. Sometimes you get skipped over for the promotion. You get ridiculed, persecuted. That happens. Jesus is preparing His disciples for this. He is. And He's preparing us. That's why he's, what He says in the next section, about 11 o'clock last night, I had an epiphany. Because I was going to preach on the whole passage here. And then He says, if anybody wants to follow me, take up your cross. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. That's too much. I'm already over on the time, you know. So we're going to talk about that next time. Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples are crystal clear about what his message is and about what it's not. So when you side with Jesus, that doesn't mean that you win 
more games and that you get a raise and that you keep your job and you keep your marriage and you get a new car. It may mean none of it. It may mean your life absolutely tanks. But here's what it does mean, guys. Listen to this. This is good news. Okay? What it does mean is that when your life tanks, Jesus will never abandon you. See, because he died. Because Jesus, in his, in his most tragic and painful moment, God abandoned him, that means God will never abandon us in our lesser tragic moment, right? That doesn't mean you're not going to have valleys of shadows of death, but it does mean this, that in those valleys of death, that Jesus will be with you. That's why there's just shadow. You've heard that at funerals before, right? Psalm 23 being read, uh, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. That's a pretty phenomenal promise there. Not just that Jesus is with you, but what that means. It means you won't face eternal death. You know what you face? You know what death is to us? It's a shadow. Have you ever seen somebody get hit by a truck going 70 miles an hour? I have. I watched it. I was right behind them when it happened. Terrible, terrible story. Terrible thing etched in my memory. Have you ever seen somebody hit by the shadow of a truck? Oh, it's a lot better picture. It's a difference. Because Christ must die and did die, we don't have to face ultimate death, right? Just the shadow. Death is the worst this life can do to us, and it's the best that can happen to us because, right, it ushers us right into the presence of God. That's the gospel, guys. Jesus went to the cross to die so that you and I didn't have to. And listen, isn't that the kind of king you want to serve, a king on a cross, right? When you come to a king that's got uh, holes in his hand, and scars underneath his crown where thorns once pierced him, doesn't that make you trust that king and say, you know what, you did that for me, I can trust you. Therefore, whatever you send me, I'm going to receive it. And whatever you ask me, I'm going to do it. That's the kind of king, the king on a cross, when you know he's there, so, do, so you didn't have to be there, that's the kind of king you say, command me, I'm yours. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Guys, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. And we're going to talk about what it means to pick up your cross and follow him our next time together, okay? This is not cheap grace. This is costly grace. That's why we can talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the punishment of God on sin. We can talk about those things here. You know why? Because that's what God's grace cost him. It's not cheap grace. It's very, very costly. The people that say, let's just talk about the love of God all the time and never mention anything negative you know, like some people that flash their pearly whites and can fill up a stadium. We're never going to talk about, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about the wrath of God. That's just so negative and judgmental. But listen, if you don't talk about that, you don't know what the love of God cost him. Cost him this, his life, the cross. That's why we talk about it. This king went to a cross for you and I. Let's pray.